0: I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn, please, to Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. The title of this morning's message is Don't Let the Fire Go Out. Don't let the fire go out. For the last two Sundays, I hope that, and if it hasn't been, it, it, it needs to be, that, that we are in a place as a church where we cannot go on doing business as usual. And so the Lord is speaking to my heart. I hope that he's speaking to your heart. Uh, The very first uh, Sunday we began this particular shift or direction, we looked at the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and how the Lord Jesus had, had drawn near to these men and they did not recognize him, even on the day of his resurrection. And as he drew near, and uh, he began to open up the Scripture to them, and once they recognized him and he disappeared, they had an awakening, a realization that no matter where they are the rest of their lives, that Jesus Christ continues to speak to us, and he continues to walk with us, and when he draws near, his presence affects us. And the presence of God throughout the Old Testament has always affected people. We see it over and over again in the Scripture. People are not able to stand. People are not able to speak. People typically drop to their knees or they lie before the Lord. His presence affects them in every level, spiritually, emotionally, physically. And in the case of these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, we saw that they became men and people, the burning heart. They said, did our hearts not burn within us as He talked to us along the way and opened up the Scriptures to us? That's the very thing that we want to happen today. And every time that we gather together to worship, and truly, even as an individual, every time you go to be with the Lord and speak to Him and open His Word. We saw last week that that it's so important that our heart remain tender before the Lord, that it's possible for our heart to grow hard and calloused. And We looked at a young man named Josiah who at the age of 16 made the decision that made all the difference for the rest of his life, and that was that he would seek the Lord with all his heart. He would seek the Lord. And it is the heart that seeks him that God rewards with his presence. In Hebrews 11, verse 6, we saw that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so if I want my heart not only to burn, but to remain tender to the Lord every time He speaks to me, every time He draws near to me, every time someone speaks His Word or teaches His Word, if I want my heart to be tender, I need to be seeking Him, seeking Him. So it's clear in my heart that God is speaking, He is doing some unusual things for me personally, and and, um, and I have such a conviction about what he desires to do among us as a church. Now, you know that this fire in the heart that God brings to us requires a response from you and me. If I do nothing, this fire will grow dim. It will not blaze. At the same level it will lessen in intensity and it can even be snuffed out in my heart and so what I want us to think about today is why that happens why does the fire the sense of God's presence and my sensitivity to him my seeking him why are those why are there those times when my heart seems just to be cold. Cold. And it seems the fire is growing dim and going out. The book of Leviticus in the Old Testament was a collection of instructions that God gave to Moses about how he wanted his people to approach him. This is before Jesus came. And so in order for God to dwell among his people he came up with this very pictorial visual way of describing what has to happen before a holy God can dwell among his people we don't have time to explore the whole design of what God gave to Moses and how that was implemented but it suffices to say that a central part of this living picture of the presence of God was the altar. The altar was the place where a holy God came in in contact with man in such a way that it was possible for God, who's a consuming fire, to have a relationship with human beings who ordinarily would be consumed by that fire because of our own sin. And you know what had to happen. Because of our sin, something had to die. And to illustrate that and drive that point home, whenever I wanted to deal with my sin in the Old Testament, I had to come and bring a sacrifice to an altar, and a priest would kill that animal, and its blood would be shed, and the fire would consume that animal, and that animal would take my place. And because of that, this holy God could then have a connection with me. Of course, all of that was a picture, wasn't it? All of that was just a way of picturing what Jesus would do for us on the cross one time forever. In dying for us on the cross, He was our sacrifice. He became sin for us. He knew no sin. He became sin for us, and God poured out on Him the punishment our sins deserved. Here's what I want you to know about this altar in the Old Testament. It consisted of a fire. In Leviticus chapter 6, verse 13, we get this instruction. In fact, it's repeated several times in this chapter. Here it is. A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. Always burning, never going out. Now, this was the instruction that God gave to Moses and the priests. And then, after all the instructions were given, they set everything up. They set up the tabernacle of meeting. They set up the altar where things die for their sin and allows a holy God to draw close. They set it all up, and, and when they were ready to begin the process, something amazing happened. In Leviticus 9, verse 24, we read, And fire came out from before the Lord, from His presence, and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on The altar. And so this altar where there was a fire that was to always be lit was first lit by God Himself. So He starts the fire. And based on what we've been studying and reading, that makes sense, doesn't it? The hearts of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, cold, afraid, lacking direction, confused. And Jesus draws near. Suddenly, they understand their hearts are alive. They are excited about Christ. They are fearless because they have met Jesus. And they said, our hearts were burning. Our hearts were burning. So who started the fire? Jesus did. Jesus did. And so God starts the fire. And whether you are a person who has walked with Jesus for a long time and you know him and... um, and, and this idea of a fire representing the presence of God, you, you understand something about this because over and over again in your walk with God, He has come to you and you have sensed His presence and your heart has begun to burn because of that. But that all began when there was a moment in time where you heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and His death for you and the Holy Spirit came and opened your heart, and you comprehended, and you began to understand the truth, and God set your heart to burning. And this process of a burning heart, a heart that is receptive and responsive to God, is like an altar where there's a fire that must be kept burning. And the Old Testament priests would come, and every morning they had to, make sure the fire had plenty of wood. Every day they had to make sure the fire had a fresh supply of wood. Every night, all night long, they had to watch it and make sure that the the fire had the fuel that it needed to continue burning. And so God started the fire, but the priest kept it going. In much the same way, God in His mercy stirs our hearts and He speaks to us and You can think back over the course of your life, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christ follower, to many occasions where God has spoken to you and your heart has been stirred. But if we don't do what the priests were told to do, if we don't take this this seriously, this business of keeping the fire going, then our fires will burn dim. Our fires will grow weak. And in some cases, our fire will go out. Today, I want us to look at the story of a man. And at this moment in his life, he's not a follower of Christ. But he's very excited about Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, we understand that he was rich. In Luke 18, we understand he was a ruler. In Matthew 19, that he's young. And so putting it together, he's often known as the young, rich ruler. But as we look at Mark... Mark emphasizes that he was rich, and he was very, very excited about meeting Jesus. And as you'll see, he runs, he kneels, he, he, he must have been smiling, he was excited. He is excited about Christ. And there is a passion there to see him, to talk with him, to hear him. But something happened to all that enthusiasm. It evaporated. In moments, it was gone. In moments, it was extinguished and it was put out. He lost the fire. Look at verse 17. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, look at that, running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. But he, the young man, was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. The fire went out. He ran up to Jesus, excited, full of passion, wanted to know Him, wanted to talk to Him. But in moments, the passion was gone. What happened to it? Something put it out. And so, I brought with me a household fire extinguisher. Okay. Y'all ready on the front row? All right. Fire extinguisher. And so, What's described in this historic event of this young man running up to Jesus is he comes with a fire that's burning in his heart, and he encounters Christ, has a few words with him, and all of a sudden, I've got it locked, y'all. I'm not going to do it. Somebody extinguishes the fire. Something causes the fire to go out. Have you ever experienced that? Does that ever happen to you? I mean, I think it happens to all of us at one time or another. We're excited about the Lord. We're excited about what we're learning. And then all of a sudden, we become convinced that Jesus wants us to do something. Or we see another Christian who's doing something that looks scary. And I'm not sure that I want to do that. And so, you know, I extinguish it. I put it out. I hear about someone who gets up early, goes to bed early, turns the TV off early so that they can be alone with the Lord before their day starts. And I think, I can't get up that early. I don't want to turn the TV off early. I don't want to do that. We we, we hose it down. We extinguish it. I'm not going there. We see a Christian who's excited. Maybe I'm standing there talking to somebody at work. Another guy walks up, he's a Christian, strong Christian, and all three of us are having a conversation. All of a sudden, that strong Christian starts talking about Jesus. And I'm a Christian too. And I ought to be excited about that. But instead, I'm thinking, ah, this is something embarrassing. I'm not sure I want to be here at this moment. And there's something inside of you that recoils at the obvious fire in the brother but it's not a fire that you share. And we extinguish it. Something inside of us puts the fire out. And so I don't know what that is like for you, but there's a very real phenomenon taking place here with this young man where this passion is suddenly extinguished. We need to understand what was causing that. Don't you want to know what causes that? I, I do. I want to, I, if there's a way that I can recognize... What is extinguishing the passion in my own heart? I want to know about it. I want to address it. I want to deal with it. Let me give you the word. Here's what's putting the fire out. Self. Self. Self will always put the fire out. Self. Look at verse 17 again. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And right away, we see the first expression of self rearing its head, don't we? There's a very great kind of self-confidence in this guy. What can I do so I can maintain control? What can I do? I can walk an aisle, I can take a preacher's hand, I can get baptized, I can join the church, and I have inherited eternal life. What can I do? Self-confidence and self is rearing its head. What does Jesus do? Well, I don't believe it's an accident that Jesus called attention to the particular commandments that he lists here. I suspect strongly, and I I can't prove this, but I suspect very strongly that these were all things that if you go below the surface would have shown us something about this young man's heart that he needed to see. And so Jesus points him to the law, and he talks about you don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, false witness, defrauding, honor your father and mother, and so forth. And um, I believe these are probably issues for this man. But listen to verse 20. What does the man say? And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. All these things I have kept from my youth. He says it without flinching. I mean, he doesn't even flinch. Done that, check. If anybody's looking at the exterior of my life, I have not done these things. But now wait a minute. What did Jesus teach about these things? When he taught on the Sermon on the Mount, did he teach that this was just about external behavior or something that goes much deeper? When he said don't commit adultery, Was he just talking about the physical act of being unfaithful to a spouse? Or was he saying that guys who even imagine adultery are guilty? People who are angry are guilty of murder. That's on the inside. No one may see that, but the anger is the same thing as murder. Using that approach then, avoiding stealing, lying, genuinely honoring your parents, may not be as easy as it sounds. But this young man didn't get that did he he didn't understand that and so his self is saying I can do this I've done this Jesus is saying no you can't do this look at verse 21 then Jesus looking at him loved him and said to him one thing you lack go your way sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me now look at verse 22, but he was sad at this word. He's gone from self-confidence and he's struggling now. And let me give you what self is struggling with here. It's self-reliance. Self-reliance. What is he thinking? I can't let go of these things. I can't let go of these things. If I gave up everything that I own, who's going to take care of me? If I don't take care of me. This is my security, and I've worked hard so that I have a place, a safe place in this crazy world, and so this represented security for him, and And I did it, and I've got to take care of me, and so it's self-reliance. It, it represented his own significance. I worked for this. I earned for this because I made these things. People respect me. I have a certain amount of um, uh, stock with people because I have these things and because I've earned these things and I've earned their respect and I deserve to, to maintain this and keep this. If I give it all away how's my life going to count? Why should my life matter? And self is hanging on for dear life. So in this current approach to life this man is all about self-reliance and the Bible says that he was sad at this word in verse 22. Listen to the rest of the verse. And went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Went away. Self-confidence, I can do it. Self-reliance, can't let go of this stuff. Now self-will. I hear what you're saying, Jesus, but I'm not going to do it. And he turns and it says he went away. He went away. His will versus Christ's will. And his will... In that moment, one. That's how someone excited about Jesus can wind up walking away from Jesus. I'm going to do what I want, not what he wants. I'm going to do what pleases me. And I'm going to live for what pleases me and not what for pleases him. And so right now, you may be realizing the reason I'm not passionate about Jesus myself has been dousing the fire over and over again in my life. Jesus has been speaking to me. Jesus has been leading me. Jesus has been guiding me. And I repeatedly keep saying, no, Lord, I'm not going to go there. No, I'm not going to go there. No, I'm not going to go there. And the one th- that's driving that is called self. And All of us have a self. Anybody here doesn't have a self? <laughs> we all have a self. We all do. So every one of us has the ability to douse the passion for Jesus Christ. Every one of us. Your pastor, your deacons, your teachers, all of us. And if right now my love for Jesus is weak, I can tell you right now that self is behind your problem. And everything that Jesus is doing in your life right now, good and bad, everything that Jesus is doing in your life right now that appears to you to be good or to bad, I promise you is to bring you to a place where self is confronted. self is confronted we see this in the life of the Apostle Peter I love Peter because I can identify with him in many many ways I'm sure many of you can as well the Apostle Peter just like this young man in Mark 10 struggled with self for much of his fellowship of Jesus in the very beginning he struggled with self all the disciples did but Peter seemed to be on parade In Mark chapter 8, there was this moment in the the life of Jesus and the disciples where Jesus told them very plainly. He did this several times, but he told them very plainly, I'm going to Jerusalem. The chief priests and the scribes are going to reject me. They are going to kill me. I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to rise again. Now, Peter heard this in Mark chapter 8. You know what he said? No way! No way! There is no way I'm going to let that happen to you, Master. No way. This shall not happen, he tells Jesus. And of course, Jesus says to him, get thee behind me, Satan. And and Peter in that moment is an adversary, but it's Peter's self, his self-will, my will versus Jesus' will that's reared its head. In Mark chapter 9, the chapter just before the one that we're reading, all 12 disciples are arguing over who is going to be the greatest when Jesus becomes king who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom all 12 of them are arguing about it Jesus comes up to them he knows what they're arguing about he says look guys he said the greatest man among you is not the one that has the most people serving him the greatest man among you is not the one who has the most people serving him the greatest man among you who serves is the one who serves the greatest number of people He's the servant of all, Jesus says. And so, like all the other disciples, he struggled with self-exaltation. I want to be on top. I don't want to be under. I want to be on top. And then in Mark chapter 14, a few chapters later, Jesus is letting the disciples know that on this particular night when they arrest him and ultimately they crucify him, that all of the disciples are going to stumble and in Peter's case, because Peter says, there's no way I'm going to stumble. I mean, he says, he says in Mark 14, 29, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, look, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And in verse 72, by the time the rooster crowed the second time, Peter had in fact denied Jesus three times. And the Bible says he went out and wept. And in fact, in Matthew 26, verse 75, it says, so he went out and wept bitterly, bitterly. And his self-confidence, his self-exaltation, his self-will in the face of all of that, Peter has come to the end of his self. And he knows there's nothing in him that can follow Christ. The way he wants to follow Christ. Later, Jesus comes up to him and he, and he talks to him. You remember the story in John? He comes up to him and he says, Peter, we need to talk, man. That's, that's my paraphrase. Do you love me? Do you love me? He says. Do you love me, Peter? Because up to this point, you see, Peter, I'm not sure he had consciously answered the question the way that he wanted to. And he, he did. He said, yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. And Jesus asked him three times. And for those three denials, Peter has an opportunity for each of those three times to say, Lord, I love you. I love you. And so we see already a clue as to what has to happen with myself. Something I need to love more than myself. But then we see what happens at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. And Peter becomes a totally different man. Peter, this one who a little servant girl could say, weren't you with Jesus? And he would would become afraid and he would deny Jesus and he would curse. I never knew the man. The same Peter, after the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of him, is preaching from the very steps of the temple of Jerusalem fearlessly. And later we read that one of the fruit, part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, part of the expression of the life of Christ in us, when the Holy Spirit lives in us, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, self-control, self-control, self-control. Have you come to that place? Have you come to a place where you realize that myself is not going to get me through this thing called a Christian life? Your problem is not that you have a bad habit. Your problem is not that you should go to church more, read your Bible more, or pray more. Your problem is yourself. It's self that douses the passion, that douses the fire. Everything else is a symptom of that. Everything else I do that's not right is a symptom of something wrong with the fire inside of me. The root problem is that self is in charge and calling the shots and refusing to trust Jesus for anything, and it is killing my passion for Jesus when it does that. So how do you deal with self? I want you to notice how Jesus responds to this man, and and this this is what we need to see. Verse 21. Mark 10, verse 21. Then Jesus looking at him, loved him, and said to him, one thing you lack. Go your way, and he tells him to sell all of his things and give it to the poor. And then he says, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. Now, two statements from verse 21 this week just leapt out and captured my full attention. The first one is that Jesus loved him. The other gospel writers telling this story in Matthew and Luke, they don't capture that, that, that piece of the story. But Mark does. Jesus looked at him. He was a guy full of self-confidence, full of self-reliance, full of self-will, full of self, and Jesus looks at him, and he loves him. He loves him. And the second thing that captures my attention is that Jesus says to him, The question was, how can I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, one thing you lack. You see it? One thing you lack. And then he proceeds to tell him five things to do. Now that's curious to me. Do you see the the disconnect? Jesus says, one thing you lack, and then he tells him five imperative statements of what he needs to do. One thing you lack. Five things to do. What's going on? Well, let's look at those five things. He says, go your way. Go your way. And uh, and I believe that speaks to the uniqueness of how self is formed and malformed inside each of us. What this man needed to do is not necessarily what you need to do. That was one of the mistakes of some of the medieval teachers in the 1500s, 1400s. They said, everybody needs to do this if they're going to get close to God. They need to sell everything that they have. They need to go uh, give it all away. and And that's what they need to do. And yet we found that there were people who did those kinds of things that still struggled with self in a terrible way. But for this man, there was a way for him. A way for him. And it was, I believe, unique to this individual at this moment in his life. Self was hanging on to the stuff for all he was worth. I can't live without this. Go your way. And then the next two verbs, sell and give. Sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. What is your way? If right now you were to put your finger on the one thing, the one thing that stands between you and a full-blown passion for Jesus Christ, what is standing in the way? What is it that you will not let go of in your mind, that keeps you from a full-blown passion for Jesus. Go your way. Sell. Give. Those are decisive acts. Give up these little things. Give up all these little things. The little baubles, the things that were our dreams, the things that we think are going to make me happy. He says, let it go. Let it go. Go your way. Identify what that is and decisively say, I am letting that go. Then he says, come. Come. Suddenly, he shifts to a, in the original language, in a way that we can't see obviously with English, but it's now present tense. He says, Come, be coming with your cross. Be coming with your cross. And then he says, And be following me. Be coming with your cross. Now, everybody in that day and time knew that if you were carrying a cross, that was a one way trip. You were not coming back from that. You were done with this world, you were headed to the next. He says, be coming to me and carrying your cross. And then he says, and be following me. And so he has these five things that he says. And if we take all five of them together, Jesus says, one thing you lack, what is the one thing that he lacked? If I was going to put it in one sentence, what is the one thing that he lacked? Here it is. Friends, you cannot trust me and put your trust in yourself. At the same time. You must trust me only. I will take care of you. I will satisfy you. I will meet your need. I will give you meaning to your life. I have a purpose for you. Come, be carrying your cross and be following me. Just me. It's about following me. The one thing this man lacked Was the one thing he wouldn't let go of. Jesus lights the fire, but you and I must keep the fire burning. And we are extinguishing that fire when self is on the throne. Is your passion growing or is it dying? I want you to see one more thing as we close. I don't know about you, but when I read this story, it breaks my heart. There's a part of me watching this young man who came to Jesus, running to him, kneeling. And as he runs and as he kneels before Jesus, full of excitement, full of passion, and then he is unwilling to let self get off of the throne of his life. He's unwilling to follow Jesus. And as he walks away, the Bible says he went away. He was sad. He went away because he had many possessions. I don't know about you, but there's a part in me, I remember when I first read this as a college student, there's a part of me that looks at this man walking away that says, Stop! Don't! Go away from Jesus. He is what you're hungry for. He is the security that you seek. He is the answer for your deepest needs. He is the answer to your heart cry and your soul. Don't run from Him. Don't leave Him. Give it all up for Him. It is worth it. Have you ever thought that? watching him walk away maybe you've had a friend or two you've seen them walk away from the Lord now as you and I look at him walking away and we are we are in our souls crying out oh no don't do that don't leave him don't go away from Jesus are you taking your own advice Are you day by day, that's what coming and taking your cross means, always coming, always picking up your cross every day. Are you taking your own advice, or are there days when you leave the cross down, you don't pick it up, you don't die to self, and you let self just sort of run the day, except maybe on Sundays. Do we take our own advice? What would you tell that young man? Whatever you tell him, Those are words for your own soul. Don't let the fire go out. And if it's out, the thing that is dousing your fire is self. Self. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, do what the young man wouldn't do come to Christ. Give Him your life. Surrender to Him. Jesus has done everything necessary so that you could have a relationship with God. As the Son of God dying on the cross for your sins, He removed and carried away your sins, the greatest obstacle to you knowing God and and having a relationship with God. So He saves us from our sins, but, but He also enables us with His Spirit coming inside of us to be the Lord in our heart. And then He saves us not just from the penalty of all of our sins, He begins saving us from lying. He begins saving us from adultery. He begins saving us from dishonoring our parents. He begins saving us from dishonoring God. He begins saving us from specific sins. And so, are you ready to come to Christ and put your trust in Him? Brother or sister, is your fire going out? Deal with self. What is it that you're hanging on to? Let it go. Trust Him. He could be trusted. And He insists on it. There's no other way to heaven. There's no other way to forgiveness except to put your trust in Christ and surrender control to him would you come to Christ the pastors and I will be down here we'll be happy to counsel with you and share scripture with you about how a person can be made new by trusting Jesus Christ we invite you when we stand and sing to slip out of the pew where you're sitting whether you're in the balcony or downstairs and come And say, I want to trust Christ. I want to be made new today from the inside out. You may be a brother or sister and you just realize, I have my fire, my fire is so low. My passion is so weak. And I am so caught up in things that I know are not going to matter one minute after I'm dead. And that first minute when this life is over, I know everything's going to be different and I'm going to want to Wish that I had conducted my life differently, that I had confronted myself and let these things go and followed him. And I invite you, you can, where you're sitting, where you're praying, just turn to the Lord. You can come use these altar steps and pray. You can grab a friend, say, pray with me. Father, we thank you for your presence here among us. You promised that when two or three are gathered in your name, that you would be there with them. So we receive your presence by faith, but we ask you, Lord, to walk among us in these moments, and I especially pray for that one who has heard your voice this morning, who feels and senses your presence. And he wants to say yes to you. Will you answer their cry? Would you give them the direction they seek as we respond to you now in Jesus' name? Amen.